Well, thank you for that. I, <clears throat> I really like the energy part because I, I think I'm probably the oldest person in this room. And uh, what Sam doesn't know is after I make people feel energized, I always go home and take a nap. <laughs> you know, I, um, some of you might know that your church, and it, with its beginnings, has a real strong connection to the, the campus where I serve because your church began meeting when you first started in our classrooms of our old building. We, we've since moved to a much nicer and cleaner and less stinky place than that. But there's an interesting backstory, and I don't know if any of you know this story, but you should. If, if you heard it, just it's good to hear twice. <clears throat> when I first came uh, to work at Fuller, it was right before you started your church, and the person who had been the director before I was there had worked really hard to put together a scholarship program so that our needy students would have scholarships that they could access. And she did, she worked really, really hard. The only problem was not a whole lot of money got raised for it, and the money that was raised was put into an account that you couldn't get to. It was an investment account to create something that's called an endowment, where you don't pull all the money out, you just take little bits of it out. But you couldn't touch it for two years. So I was left with this really great scholarship program being advertised to all of our students and no money in it. And I thought, this is great. This is like the story of Rumpelstiltskin, you know, where the, the princess has to spin gold out of straw. I thought, this is going to be amazing. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I was new. I didn't know any of the donors. I could ask money to ask them to give money. So I was stuck. And one day, this guy comes into the office, and his name is Jin Cho. <clears throat> and I heard that he was a Fuller graduate. And he said, you know, we're starting up a, our, a new church, and we need a place to meet. Do you think we could meet here? I, we, so we checked it out and went through all the stuff and found out that that was going to work just fine. And he said to me, well, how much rent would you charge? I said, I don't know. What do you want to pay? And he says, how about this? I said, great. And off we went. <clears throat> and that went for what, two years, I believe. What most people don't know is that every penny of that rent money that you paid for our classrooms went directly into scholarships for needy students. Every penny of it. We didn't have any other money to get a hold of. Nobody was giving us anything in those days. And your church, through, through that relationship, supported the needy students for Fuller Seminary. People called by God to ministry, but struggling to get by just to, to do what they did and, and move into this place of vocation. And unbeknownst to you, you were helping them do that. Uh, isn't it great the way God orchestrates stuff? I think that's very exciting. So thank you for letting me share that. Um, I, you know, we've had a lot of references to rain here today. <clears throat> uh, for those of us who are native Californians like me, you may need to be reminded that rain is that water that occasionally falls out of the sky. Have you noticed, however, how many accidents there are on the freeways? There could be four drops of rain, and, and every freeway in Southern California backs up. And the reason is we don't know how to drive in the rain, right? Have you ever been in a skid either on an icy road or a wet road, where your car suddenly starts to skid. Do you know what you're supposed to do when, when you start skidding? Does anybody know? Can, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to turn into the skid. Your brain does not want to do that. There's a process, it's called being counterintuitive. Everything in you wants to turn away from it. And if you do, your car will spin, you'll go sideways at about 90 miles an hour. It's not a good thing. So you turn into the skid. That's what we're told. That's one of the processes that we call counterintuitive. It runs against your intuition. It's not the thing that you want to do. Eating bad food is like that. Everything in you says, 
that donut, which I've noticed you don't have any. You have bagels. Well done. Uh, everything in you says eat that donut. It's friendly. It's happy. It's comfort food. Uh, it gives you energy for about 23 seconds. Uh, but it also contains fats, calories, and other things that have no exit strategy from the human body. And to say no to that donut is completely and totally counterintuitive. That's what counterintuitive is all about. And there are a lot of things in life that are counterintuitive. They run cross-grain to the way we think things ought to be. And have you ever noticed that following Jesus is very often counterintuitive? Not like a donut, not like a skid, but in life. It's counterintuitive. And the whole gospel is counterintuitive. Think of the paradoxes that we hear in Scripture. A lot of them come straight from Jesus when he says things like, many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's counterintuitive, especially in our culture. Or when he says, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Another counterintuitive statement. Or when he says, those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or when Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in death. It's all counterintuitive. It runs cross-grain to the way we think things ought to be. And so this life of faith that we share together is, is so often characterized by one of the most counterintuitive things Imaginable, and that is our apparent value on the idea of death and resurrection. We die to what seems on the surface to be right, all the things that we think are right. We are called to die to those things and then find new life in what God desires. We believe in that death and resurrection process. And Christian community itself is counterintuitive. Let me, let me share a story from the book of Acts to illustrate what I mean. Uh, when you read up into Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's an amazing story that happens. <clears throat> the, the apostle Peter seems to have come to the conclusion that all of this stuff about Jesus, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the whole story that, that he experienced in his own life, that it was basically and exclusively a Jewish story. Now, you can't really blame him for thinking that. Jesus was Jewish. He said he came for the people of Israel. All of the drama happened right there in Israel. All of the earliest believers, they're all Jewish people. It, it would stand to reason that if you were in that place, you might think that was the case as well. This is a uniquely Jewish story. It would just make sense. However, when you read in the book of Acts and you get into chapter 10, something incredibly weird happens. Uh, Peter's taken a little break from his, his stuff that he's doing, his busy schedule, and he's gone to the home of a guy named Simon, Simon the Tanner. And <clears throat> he was uh, up on the roof, perhaps enjoying the ocean view, just relaxing for a little while. And his time of relaxation gets disturbed by this really odd vision. And you might remember the story, this, this huge sheet drops out of the sky. And in this sheet, there's all of these squirming, wriggling creatures. There's scorpions and snakes, and pigs, and shellfish, and lobsters, and all of these animals that to us might just be interesting, but to a good, devout Jewish man was a huge offense. 
because Jewish people didn't eat that kind of stuff. And the reason the eating is important is that a voice spoke as the sheet came down and spoke directly to Peter and said, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, the offense was over. For, for us, it would be like, like a sheet full of bugs, cockroaches, you know, earthworms, and someone telling us to eat that. We'd be horrified. But he was horrified on a religious basis because that was unclean for him to do that. Well, the worst thing is this happened three times. And every time the voice said, rise up, Peter, kill and eat, Peter protested. He said, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. You know, the implication is I've been a good boy. I have followed all the rules. I'm a good Jewish guy. I didn't do, I don't do this. So I've got to protest. And every time Peter would protest, the voice would persist and correct him and say, do not call profane what God has made clean. Happens three times. The sheet goes back up into the sky, gone. It's all over. And Peter's left to figure out what in the world just happened here. What does all of this even mean? Well, he soon found out because as he's sitting there pondering this, there's a knock at the door downstairs. And, uh, and somebody answers the door, and there's these men standing at the door. Now, these are Gentile men, non-Jewish men. And what do these guys want? Well, they want Peter. So Peter comes down, and he's got to be a little bit cautious here because there's not a real strong friendship in those days between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Because in the Jewish person's mind is that if you hang around with the non-Jewish people, you sort of get their stuff on you. They're germs, you know, and, and you're unclean, and you might have to go through a bunch of ritual stuff to get it all off of you and get clean again. So now he's standing there, and, and these men are at the door. And they say, look, we were sent here by a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, not a Jewish guy. And, uh, but he's a God-fearer. You know, he fears the God of Israel, believes in the God of Israel. Uh, and he had a vision of his own. And it was all about you, Peter. He said, this voice told us to go to the home of Simon the Tanner. You're going to find a guy named Peter. Go get him. And here we are. Well, Peter, having hung around Jesus for a while, understands something's going on here. A couple of visions. Got the Gentile guys. I need to pay attention to this. And he does. They spend a little time together, and then Peter goes with them. Now, this was dangerous. This was the kind of followership that gets you into trouble. Peter was following in a dangerous way. Well, he followed these men, and they go to the home of this man named Cornelius. Now, you would think it'd be one thing if Cornelius was just in the room, sitting there in a chair, waiting to talk to Peter. But instead, Cornelius invited everybody he knew. His friends, his relatives, his business associates. The house is full of Gentile people. And Peter walks up, and he stands on the threshold. And I'm kind of filling in the story here for you. He stands on the threshold, and he looks in at all of these people maybe reminding him of this sheet being lowered from the sky with these unclean creatures in it. And he's got to make a choice. Do I step over or not? Now, if he steps over, he is immersed in ritual uncleanness. He's going to have to be taking ritual baths for the next five months to get all this Gentile stuff off of him. But he does it. He steps into the dangerous and scandalous place of Cornelius' home. And it's amazing what happens as we read the story. <clears throat> um, he realizes that these are, these are God-fearers, and they're really interested in hearing about Jesus. And, and he begins to shift his thinking a little bit and, and says, you know, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that God is more accepting than I gave him credit for. That people like you who do right, he says, you're acceptable to God. Apparently that's the case. And he begins to talk to them about Jesus, and then something remarkable happens. We're told in the text that the Holy Spirit falls on the people. 
And they begin to praise God and speak in tongues. Now, it's a very familiar phenomenon if you've been reading through the book of Acts because it happened to Peter and his friends just a few chapters earlier on the day of Pentecost. Same thing happened to them. And so Peter is sitting here with these non-Jewish people saying, you know, they didn't have to do all the Jewish stuff that I had to do. And yet the Holy Spirit's being poured out on them exactly the same way it got poured out on me and my friends. Peter's absolutely stunned by this, doesn't know what to do with it, and so he hangs around with them, even baptizes some folks. Well, word got back to Jerusalem, to the home office. Uh, His associates, the the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they said, you know, you need to come back and explain this to us, Peter, because this is breaking all of the rules. And Peter goes back. And they say, what's going on? You, you're, you've, you're in violation of about 800 Jewish laws. What, what are you doing? And here's what Peter told them. First of all, he summarized the entire story. And then he said, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And when they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This was a death and resurrection experience for them. See, Peter had been convinced that this whole story of Jesus, this whole phenomenon that had happened, this was a Jewish thing. It was all about Jewish people. And God drew him into a bigger story of God's love and favor that was for the whole world. But it was a very uncomfortable, counterintuitive experience for Peter and the other leaders in Jerusalem. It was not the way things were supposed to be according to what they thought. See, allowing these Gentile people into the family of faith was not only dangerous and scandalous in terms of religious practice, but it threatened the whole predictable chemistry of their church. It was going to shake things up in a way that was unpredictable. And, you know, I I don't think we can be real quick to judge Peter and the others for making this mistake going into the story. It's a really natural tendency for us to attempt to keep all of the intrusions of life away from us, keep them to a minimum for the sake of preserving safety and community. We do that in all kinds of ways. Uh, Think about some of your most cherished family celebrations, Uh, Christmas perhaps, and then all of a sudden one day someone invites somebody who never was invited to your family celebration before, and it stirs things up just a little bit. Things aren't quite as predictable as they were a year ago with this new person in the room. So it is counterintuitive to intentionally disrupt our sense of community. Now, see, we might all be for the idea of resurrection. It's the death part that we struggle with. We'd love to do the resurrection piece as long as we could stay away from the death piece. You know, a few weeks ago when um, Pastor Jen contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to come and and, and be with you on this day, we went and had lunch and and we started talking. And he told me your story as a congregation. He told me that, that you've, you've come to the conclusion that you're going to be merging with a, another fellowship. You're going to be coming together as a whole new worshiping community. And, and I want you to know, I, I admire what you are doing. Um, I, I am just touched when I see new communities emerge in all, all kinds of ways. And, uh, and I just congratulate you and I honor you and bless you for, for what you're about to do. But, usually when this kind of thing happens there are two kinds of anticipations that emerge. The first is that a really fun adventure is ahead. And the other is that everything you've cherished is now at risk. 
Here's a kind of way of explaining what I mean. When two people come together in a relationship, friendship, there really are three things that are present. There's this person and this person, and then there's the relationship that they share together. So where two are gathered, there's actually three in many ways. See, a, a, a relationship has a, almost a tangible presence that rises above or transcends the, the existence of the two people who are sharing this life together. I mean, think about this for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation, and I'm sure everybody has, where you've been in a you know, quiet corner of a restaurant or a coffee shop, not Starbucks, because they don't have any quiet corners at all, or, or somewhere, and you're having this fantastic conversation. You're just bonding with this person, and it's going deep within your lives, and, and it's almost a magical experience, if you can think of those times. And then right in the middle of it, someone else walks up, someone you know, and everything changes. Sometimes it's a good change, and sometimes it's not such a good change. Sometimes it's good because if the person is welcomed into your group, uh, things even get better. If the person is not so welcomed, it might mess things up in a way that, that you don't like. Uh, but no matter what, what you had before dies. It's gone. Have you ever been that third person? Have you ever been that person that's walked up when people are already talking? Can't you kind of feel the resistance when you first step up, knowing that something's going on that you weren't a part of? I had this happen to me just last week. Um, I, there's three women who work in my office for me, with me. Uh, and I hired them all, but I work for them, I think. And... Uh, <clears throat> Two of them were in the office next door talking in kind of hushed tones, and I came around to ask them something, and I came up and I felt like I bumped into a, a resistance, almost like an, in the air, you know. And I suddenly realized that the conversation stopped when I came to the door, and they both gave me this really funny look, and I thought, this is one of those women things. <laughs> and I looked at them and I said, is this a conversation that I shouldn't be a part of? And one of them looks at me with big eyes and she says, and I backed out the door, went back to my office, and continued to mind my own business. But if you, have, you've ever done that, you, even if you're welcomed in, at first there's a resistance because you haven't been a part of what's been going on. But if you've been welcomed in, a whole new thing happens. But very clearly, the thing that was there in the first place is gone. You can't make it come back again. A new thing will happen, and perhaps it's a better thing than what you had in the first place. But clearly, there has been death, and there has been resurrection. And true, authentic Christian community is defined by death and resurrection. I want you to think for a moment about the warmest, most intimate worship time that you've ever had together as a church. The kind of times where all of a sudden you feel like your heart is just going to burst with love for God and love for others and a sense of God's presence among you. Think of a time in a small group fellowship, perhaps, where you've bonded and engaged with people in such a way and felt the safety of opening your life to them and receiving prayer and, and comfort for all kinds of things that have taken place in your life. Think about how much those things have ministered to you and how much you have valued them. And you can have all of that, and you can call it Christian community, as long as you are willing to continuously subject it to death. And that, my friends, is counterintuitive. You know, one day, Jesus was invited to have dinner with a, a leader, a Jewish leader, a Pharisee named Simon, another Simon. And they were talking during their meal. 
Uh, Simon had a lot of questions to give to Jesus, and, and we can assume there was some kind of chemistry between them as the conversation took place. But then someone came in the room, into the space, with probably more of a patio, and completely changed the chemistry. It was a woman, but not just any woman. She was a prostitute. And she had kind of drifted into that patio seating area, uninvited, unwelcomed, but she came in anyway. And she wept over Jesus. She took this expensive perfume, very likely a tool of her trade, poured it on Jesus, anointed him. She wept over him. She wept on his feet, wiped his feet with her hair. And the sense of predictable community that existed before she came in the room died. It completely died. And for Simon, it was dead and buried and gone. Because for him, this was a test of Jesus' prophetic skills to determine what kind of woman this intruder was. And from Simon's standpoint, she failed the te- he failed the test. Because he says if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. From his standpoint, Jesus flunked the exam completely. But for Jesus, he would not allow the death of that community, that community that existed between Simon and Jesus, to have the last word. Because for him, a new kind of community suddenly opened up. It was a community that drew the outsider in. And in this new resurrected community, the depth of God's love and forgiveness was revealed as Jesus embraced this broken woman. You know, I I knew a a Christian leader um, who came to faith in Christ in the early 1960s. He had worked in the music industry, rock and roll business. He was in the, he was in the music production. He, he played for uh, some very well-known rock groups in the day. Uh, came out of a world of drugs, alcohol, and all of the things that came with it. His marriage was about to, to be destroyed. And he and his wife came to faith in Christ. Uh, it was a very dramatic time for him. He had never read a Bible before, uh, had no concept of any religious construct whatsoever. So all of this was very, very new to him. And he and his wife were embraced by a a little church right here in Orange County. And they brought them in. They taught them about Jesus, discipled them. He was so excited about his newfound faith that he kept going back to his old friends and telling them what God had done in his life and inviting them to come to church. And they did. Uh, There's one one person told me that there's an estimate that through that network of relationships, about a thousand people came to faith and came to that church. And uh, it seemed like a very exciting thing. You know, you hear it. Can you imagine what it would be like if a thousand people were added to your fellowship here? Very, very exciting time. But in that little church, not everybody was completely excited. Uh, This was a very kind and devout loving group of people. But they didn't know what to do with these newcomers who had long hair, a scruffy appearance that after the service would go out to the parking lot and smoke cigarettes and swear and do all the things that was real common to the culture they'd come out of. It was true these people were coming to faith, but it was completely disrupting the community. Well, the man who had instigated all of this over time was invited to joined the staff of that church as a pastor, and he did that. And he continued to reach out, bring his old friends in to the church. And one day, as he was 
leaving his office at the church and walking out to his car, a woman from the church approached him, very angry. And she stuck her finger right in his face and she says, you have ruined this church. And she was weeping. And he said to her, I know. I know that I've ruined this church. But what was I to do? When I was lost and floundering, you people took me in and you cared for me. You taught me about Jesus. You you taught me to love the community of faith. You helped me move on with my life. You helped me save my marriage. What was I to do? How, How could I leave them in the place that I used to be in? And I know that in doing this, I've ruined the church. And she said, I know. And I know it was the right thing. It's just really really hard. And, and you know, she was right. Um, such a change would have been incredibly difficult. In fact, for her and for probably many others in the church, it was a death experience. All that they had come to know and cherish had completely died as this influx of people had come into their fellowship. But there would be a significant and startling resurrection that would happen in that community, the effects of which are felt even today from that church. And you know, I think one of the places that we Christians really get stuck in is this whole idea of of community. Especially here in Southern California, we we struggle with it probably more than most places in the United States. Um, We do work hard to make community happen, and so we should. We seek to learn to love one another, to grow in our faith, and we should do that as well. But we will all have to learn, all of us, that in order to find the real life of community, we will have to continuously put it to death. When the outsider seeks to enter in, our grip on community will have to be loosened and released. We have to trust God to resurrect a new kind of community of the Spirit every time a new face emerges into our midst, whether it's one person or a thousand people. You know, you do small groups here at your church, right? You do small groups here? Somewhat? Well, you know, for a lot of us, that's old stuff. But it's a relatively new phenomenon in the Western church. Uh, When I was a teenager in the 1960s, um, back before the invention of the wheel, uh, nobody had small groups in churches. You just didn't do that sort of thing. The little church that I was in didn't do any small groups. We went to church on Sunday morning, went to church on Sunday night, Uh, For me, the only redeeming part of that was that after church on Sunday night, I got to go goof around with my friends in the youth group, but we went to everything. Wednesday night, had to do Wednesday night prayer meeting. um, But before prayer meeting, something really interesting happened in that little church. These good folks would gather for something that they would call a potluck dinner. Um, I know people who make fun of potluck dinners, and I'm thinking they don't understand that it means food, home-cooked food, nothing from the grocery store, no plastic bags, just casseroles and crazy things. It was great. And after the meal, we teenagers would play basketball in the fellowship hall while everybody else would go out into the community. And you know what they would do, these old provincial folks? They'd go visit those from the congregation who were sick, the elderly who couldn't get out of their homes and come to church, people who uh, used to come to our church but didn't come anymore, They would go visit people who visited once and shot out the back door and never came back again. A lot of those. They would talk, go and visit with people who had simply inquired and go visit with these people. And I don't know that they realized it. 
But they were out working to completely disrupt our fellowship. They would not have categorized it that way. But clearly, if all of those people would have shown up, everything would have died and new life would have been resurrected. And I bless them for that. You know, I I believe that there are a number of things right at the heart of Christian community. First of all, there's worship, as we gather today to do. Turning our lives and our attention and our service to God, which leads us right into God's mission in the world. And there's love. Expressing our love for God by loving one another in the family of faith. And a third crucial component of Christian community is something we call hospitality. Most of you probably know the New Testament was written in an ancient form of Greek. And the Greek word that we translate as hospitality is literally translated as love for the stranger. As when the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 tells the church there, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. And see, hospitality is about letting our own preferences die in order to extend love to the other person, to the stranger, the one that is uncommon to us. Hospitality is about dying to our own claim on predictability, our own claim on comfort, and allowing the Spirit of God to bring continuous resurrection into our relationships. Because being a Christian isn't about spirituality. Christian community is not about spirituality. But being a Christian in community is about the Holy Spirit. So as we seek to submit our desires for life and community to the very Spirit of God, we open up the possibility of having our own desires transformed into God's desires. And in doing that, we will find the real life of community that God has for us. And let me offer a final image as I close that I hope you'll find helpful. Uh, it's, It's a brief part of a larger story that comes from the Old Testament book of Ezra. It was read to us this morning. And uh, the larger picture is that the exiled people of Israel, they, long ago, Israel, uh, J- Jerusalem had been wiped out. The people had been exiled into foreign lands. And now they've gotten permission to come back and rebuild everything, including the temple, which had long ago been destroyed. And the project, of course, was plagued by all sorts of difficulties. But in the midst of all of it, the people managed to get a new foundation laid for the temple, which in those days involved a lot of hard work and a lot of big rocks. So it was a big deal to get that foundation laid. Now, the original temple, one that was built by the famous King Solomon, had long ago been destroyed, and it was considered one of the wonders of the world in those days. But it was gone, completely gone. And the people were now experiencing the possibility that something new was about to happen for them. Let me read it to you one more time. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they said, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people resounded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, 
for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. You know, I'm fascinated by the responses of those two groups of people. You know, the old folks, the ones who remembered that first glorious temple, cried. They wept loudly because they recognized that this new temple was just not going to be the same as the old one. Couldn't possibly have, have the glory of that old temple. But the younger ones, the ones who had never seen the first temple in the first place, rejoiced because they hoped to see a temple constructed for the first time in their lives. And you can just imagine the sound, can't you? You've got cries of grief and longing that are merging with shouts of joy and excitement. And they all blend together in this single concert of voices. And because the people shared a common life and mission together, they allowed space for that. They allowed space for multiple voices to cry out, and yet they wove all those responses together as an act of worship. You know, as you prepare to come together as a new congregation, joining your lives almost in a marriage format with another congregation, you are very likely going to hear some of the same voices along the way. In fact, within yourself, you may have both of those voices crying out right at the same time. Crying out, isn't it going to be great, along with, what am I going to lose? Because that's how we people do things. Some are going to cry that things are not going to be the same, and they will be right. Others are going to be excited about the new things that are going to come about, and they too will be right. And in their own ways, these multiples of voices are going to be describing the process of death and resurrection. And either way, something that you have known together for several years will have to die. But you can look to God and you can trust him to bring about a resurrection that expresses his desires for you and for the new community that will emerge that he will be raising up. As I stop, I'd like to just pray for you in this very, very important time in the life of your community. God, along with our confession of the morning, we confess that while with our mouths we often say, God, we look for the new thing that you will do, but in our hearts we often say, please don't do anything that's new. And we confess to you multiple feelings within us, excitement about what might come, and despair over what might be lost. And Lord, I I pray that you will empower this body of people to free up those voices, to express all that is within them, whether it's a cry of lament or a shout of joy. Let those voices come together before you as an offering. And I pray, Lord, for, for all the voices that come up in this room in this time and for the congregation that will be joining here as well, that you will reform all of those voices into a kind of of tapestry, of expectation as they look forward to the work that you will do in this place and in this time with these good people. I pray, Lord, that you will break fear that rides in the hearts of those who anticipate this change and replace that fear with a deep sense of confidence that you can be trusted in this. I pray for those who are not here, those who are part of the other congregation, and pray the same thing for them, that when they all come together, that it will be a place of sacrificing themselves before you that a new birth might take place in your resurrection. 
I ask your blessing will come on both congregations. That they will know the joy of sharing their lives, not only with those who are predictable, but those who are new and in some ways to our eyes even strange. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.